Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Welcome back. And can I just start this one by saying episode 20, friends? 20! Can you believe it? We definitely need some confetti or something to celebrate. Wow! Many, many thanks to all of you for journeying alongside me in God's Word. We have already covered quite a wide range of territory on these thin, crinkly pages for sure, my friends, with so very much more to come. And I do have one other side note to share before we dive into our study time today. As you may have noticed lately, my research brain has been guilty as charged of finding so much information in my studies I feel I just must share, that the last few episodes have been nearly double in length, a two-for-one, so to speak. (laughs) However, this is just a heads up that I believe we have worked through some helpful additional resources to now have a pretty solid framework in place for processing the struggles we encounter in life with God's perspective in mind. So please know that I do plan to scale back on episode length from here on out. Until the next time, I guess, right? (laughs) I know I have mentioned multiple times that I tend to get wordy when I find things in my research I simply must pass along to all of you. I guess these last few episodes provide solid proof that I for sure wasn't lying when I said that early on. (laughs) Okay, so friends. Did you find time to take a deep dive on your own in chapters 22 through 24, as I asked in the last episode? How did you do? My hope and prayer is that you met with God on those pages in your study of those chapters. And if you haven't had a chance to do so yet, I promise you are never too late to spend time with God studying His Word. Anytime we lean in is the absolute right time and oh so very valuable. With that in mind, and before we begin today's study— I want to backtrack to highlight a few things that jumped off the page to me in my study time. Maybe these caught your attention, too. The saying, even when we feel distant from God, God is not distant from us, came to mind as I read verses 8 through 9. Let's hear them from the NLT. I go east, but he is not there. I go west, but I cannot find him. I do not see him in the north, for he is hidden. I look to the south, but he is concealed. Listen to what the Bible recap has to say here. In chapter 23, Job laments the distance of God. He wants to plead his case before God, and frankly, if I were him, and I just listened to all these things from my friends, I just want to talk to God too. In the midst of Job's lament, he said something that jumped out to me. In chapter 28, verses 8 and 9, he said, Behold, I go forward. He is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left, when he is working, I do not behold him. I think it's really interesting that Job trusts that God is there, at work in the midst of this, even though he doesn't perceive him anywhere. In chapter 23, verse 14, he says, He will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Honestly, Job is terrified at what those things might be. Maybe you've been there, expecting God to do the worst. But despite all his fear, Job still doesn't curse God. He continues to yield to him and acknowledge his sovereignty. In chapter 23, verse 13, he says, He is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, 
that he does. Job is in a place of wrestling with his own lack of control. It's almost like he's despairing, and at the same time acknowledging God's ultimate control over his life. So where did you see God's character on display in these verses? I most love the reminder that He is at work even when I can't see what's going on. He is still in control. He is still active. And though I may have to wrestle with myself over my fears of what may come, and I may have to surrender my desire to have all the answers, it's evident that He's at work. Job knew it. I know it. On the left hand, when He is working, I do not behold Him. And Job wants to talk to God, maybe just for answers and probably to try to make a point. But hopefully, a little bit of what's built into his desire to talk to God is the knowledge that God gets him when none of his friends do. That God actually knows what's happening and isn't just guessing. And that God has a way out and is going to bring resolution. I think that deep down Job knows God's got this. God's got this. Just one more example of the many ways God tenderly speaks to us, my friends, because I kid you not. A couple weeks ago, I updated the wording on our black felt board on top of our refrigerator, and yep, you guessed it, it reads, God's got this. And here, days later, God reminds me of this truth through these words about the book of Job, chapter 23, from the Bible recap. Amazing. Just amazing. Moving on. The Jesus Bible encourages us to recognize that in chapter 23, verses 1 through 12, we see that Job was honest about his pain and frustration. He cried out to God from the depths of his heart. He felt abandoned. He felt like he did not have the answers to his questions, but he kept holding on to God. Even though God did not seem to be near to Job at all, Job still expressed an unshaken confidence in God. Job knew that God was refining him through this process. Gold must be heated to 1,063 degrees Celsius in order to melt. The impurities in gold only come out when the gold melts down. Job trusted God when life was hard. He trusted that God was purifying him. Job's sufferings foreshadowed the experience of Jesus on the cross as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As found in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. Job's sufferings were terrible but they do not compare to the depth of agony that Jesus experienced on the cross as he died for us. God's best for the world is not going around the pain and suffering, but through it. Job went through these unthinkable circumstances in order to be refined. Jesus went through the ordeal on the cross in order to create the only way to God. Friends, I don't know about you, but this discussion about the intensity of heat required to refine gold in comparison to Job's suffering, and then in comparison to Jesus' suffering for us on the cross, gives me a whole new perspective when Job says in chapter 23, verse 10, this time in the NIV, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Wow. Verse 5, Suffering and Sovereignty Study reminds us about the importance of finding faith over our feelings with these thoughts. Distress has a way of sending us on a frantic search for God. Where we might before have been unconcerned, we become desperate for a sign that God is working in our midst. Job knows this feeling all too well. In his immense suffering, he searched for God, from east to west and north to south. The problem seems to be that Job can't find God. We might expect this to put him in even more of a panic, but despite being unable to find him, Job is certain that God is at work, even if he can't see it. Even more, Job knows that God has his gaze on him. God knows where Job has been and where he is going because God orchestrated Job's life the same way he orchestrates our lives. What would our lives be like if we had this kind of faith? 
When God seems absent, what if we knew that whether we feel the presence of God or not, He is there, at work, and arranging our lives? In this book, Job experiences every feeling under the sun. He is happy, blessed, angry, joyful, afraid, peaceful, and hurt. And he is right to feel all of those. Job's feelings do not discount his faith, but they do not dictate his faith either. How did Job attain such a great faith? He tells us himself in Job chapter 23, verse 12. Job doesn't know God's specific work, but he knows how to follow God's footsteps. Job didn't even have the benefit that we do of having an entire, easily accessible, divinely inspired scripture. Yet in the good and the bad, the amazing and the horrific, Job treasures God and his words and closely follows after God. For us to override our feelings and walk in faith, we must first know God's footsteps. The only way we can know God's footsteps is by learning about Him from His Word. By becoming followers of Christ, we know God, but we have the opportunity to know Him so much more. God's Word teaches us about Him, and by learning about Him, we grow in righteousness and in faith. Because Job had an understanding of God and His character, he was able to have faith that his suffering was part of God's righteousness. This kind of extraordinary faith is a result of a life dedicated to the Word and the work of God. Continuing on to study Job chapter 24, the Jesus Bible has this to say about the times when God seems silent in our lives. Sometimes God's people feel He is nowhere to be found in their moments of greatest need. Jesus' own disciples felt this way when they were with Him. In the midst of a terrible storm, they woke Jesus to the complaint, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Mark chapter 4 verse 38. Job felt this way too. In the darkest times, no amount of human companionship is sufficient. The soul was made for God, and humans need divine revelation more than philosophical arguments when facing suffering. God has a plan for the good of His people, even though they cannot always see or understand how it all comes together. At the heart of God's plan is Jesus. Jesus is how people come to know God and how everything can be made right. Jesus took the worst of humanity's sufferings upon himself. Job wishes that someone would step in to mediate between himself and God, as mentioned in chapter 9, verse 33. Praise God that he has provided the best mediator for us. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. God sent Jesus at the proper time to defeat sin and make humans right with God. God's people can trust His timing and His provision. I so appreciate this insight that Jesus' Bible provides in our study time, as we seek to discover how Jesus is found throughout all of Scripture, including the instance of immense suffering found in Job's life and our own lives, too. Okay, I think at this point I better transition to today's study in chapters 25 through 28 before we run out of time. Goodness gracious! Only a few minutes from my promise to scale back on episode length and content. I may need an intervention over here, friends. (laughs) Anyway, let's read of Bildad's third attack in Job chapter 25 from the Message Translation. It begins, Bildad the Shuite again attacked Job. God is sovereign. God is fearsome. Everything in the cosmos fits and works in his plan. Can anyone count his angel armies? Is there any place where his light doesn't shine? How can a mere mortal presume to stand up to God? How can an ordinary person pretend to be guiltless? Why, even the moon has its flaws. Even the stars aren't perfect in God's eyes. So how much less plain men and women? 
slugs, maggots, and worms by comparison. Slugs, maggots, and worms? Really, Bildad? Oh my. The NLT Life Application Study Bible addresses this crazy comparison by stating, It is important to understand that Bildad, not God, was calling people worms. Human beings are created in God's image as we learn back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Psalm chapter 8, verse 5 says that people are a little lower than God. Bildad may simply have been using a poetic description to contrast our worth to the worth and power of God. To come to God, we need not crawl like worms. We can approach Him boldly in faith, as referenced in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let's listen into this perspective about what we see happening here from the Jesus Bible. One of Job's friends, Bildad, asked a penetrating question. How then can a mortal be righteous before God? Job chapter 25, verse 4. This vital question operates at several levels, cutting to the heart of the human condition and pointing to the great hope God's people have in Christ. The question also looks for a solution. Here, Job's friends simply wondered about righteousness before God and if it was even a possibility. From cover to cover, the Bible is absolutely clear that no human being can ever be righteous before God on his or her own. But in Christ, it is possible for sinful people to be made right with God. The question reveals the complex relationship between sin and suffering. Bildad was clinging to the false idea that Job was suffering because he had unconfessed sin in his life. Job was not sinless, but he was forgiven. He confessed his sins, as we saw in Job chapter 7, verse 21, and made the sacrifices God demanded, as we saw in Job chapter 1, verse 5. And those sacrifices pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Lastly, the question highlights a common misunderstanding. No one is righteous before God, this is certain. But Bildad inferred that human beings cannot be righteous because they are the equivalent of a maggot or worm, and this is entirely misleading. God never belittles humans like this. God sees people as creatures of worth and value made in His image and precious enough to send Jesus to die for, even when they are in the depths of sin and rebellion. Righteousness cannot be attained, but it can be received. Jesus pointed out that it is a mistake to try to justify oneself before God like the Pharisees did in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Only God is righteous, as found in Psalm 119, verse 142, or Romans chapter 3, verse 10. For humans to be righteous, they need God to give His righteousness to them. This is why people need Jesus. Jesus' perfect life made His sacrificial death a means of righteousness for those who respond to Him in faith, as found in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. All throughout Scripture, righteousness before God is found in trusting God's promises. That is what it means to have faith. This pattern is seen with Abraham, who believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. The only way for a person to be right before God is for God to give that person right standing based on Jesus' perfection. What Abraham believed, Jesus accomplished. My hope is this helped provide a bit of framework for us to understand what righteousness before God means. Not an easy concept to grasp for sure. Here's another way of saying it. Righteousness means being right with God. Righteousness is not something people can earn or claim for themselves. It is a title that God grants through His grace, through Jesus. Okay, continuing on, Job's defense, as found in chapter 26, says, Job answered, Well, you've certainly been a great help to this helpless man. You came to the rescue just in the nick of time. What wonderful advice you've given to a mixed-up man. What insights you've provided. 
Where in the world did you learn all this? How did you become so inspired? All the buried dead are in torment, and all who've been drowned in the deep, deep sea. Hell is ripped open before God, graveyards dug up and exposed. He spreads the sky over unformed space, hangs the earth out in empty space. He pours water into cumulus cloud bags, and the bags don't burst. He makes the moon wax and wane, putting it through its phases. He draws a horizon out over the ocean, sets a boundary between light and darkness. Thunder crashes and rumbles in the skies. Listen, it's God raising his voice. By his power, he stills sea storms. By his wisdom, he tames sea monsters. With one breath, he clears the sky, and with one finger, he crushes the sea serpent. And this is only the beginning, a mere whisper of his rule. Whatever will we do if he really raised his voice? Oh, friends, suffering has a way of dredging up all kinds of questions. What is God doing? Why did he let this happen? What will tomorrow be like? Is this the worst of it? What should I do? What are people thinking? Can God really use this for my good? And the truth is, in the midst of suffering, we rarely get the answers to these questions, at least not right away. But is it possible that even unanswered questions have a purpose? Can questions for which we don't have answers actually teach us something? Can what we don't know actually strengthen our faith? I think Job chapter 26 says yes. This chapter begins rather bleakly. Job uses sarcasm to highlight his friend's failures at sharing encouragement. After all their speeches and words, Job has gained neither wisdom nor hope. Seemingly exasperated, Job changes his course mid-speech. He begins to describe the attributes and glorious work of God. Job says God holds the world and keeps it suspended over nothingness. He spread the sky over the heavens. He fills the clouds with water, yet they do not burst with the weight. He sets the boundary line between heaven and earth, dark and light. And all of these majestic works, according to Job, are just a faint whisper of the wonder of God. What Job knows about God is only the fringe of the glory of who he is and all he can do. What Job is saying here is so, so valuable as we suffer. What we know about God can point us to all we don't know about God. When we look at all that God can do, the supreme power He shows over nature, the care He demonstrates for the world, the power He holds in His hands, we remember the bigness of God. He is beyond us, and He knows what we don't. Consequently, there will be things about Him we simply won't understand and questions we won't have answers for. But maybe, just maybe, that's a good thing. What if we could know everything about God? What if we perfectly understood what He was doing as He did it? What if we could predict his every move? What if he made sense to us? Would he really be God? I don't think so. God's mystery is part of his majesty. I think that's what Job is trying to say. When we wrestle with questions prompted by suffering, we are reminded there is one who knows every answer, even and especially when we don't. And while we may not know the answers, we know the answer giver. In chapter 21, Job now resumed his defense. God alive, he's denied me justice. God almighty, he's ruined my life. But for as long as I draw breath, and for as long as God breathes life into me, I refuse to say one word that isn't true. I refuse to confess to any charge that's false. There's no way I'll ever agree to your accusations. I'll not deny my integrity, even if it costs me my life. I'm holding fast to my integrity and not loosening my grip. And believe me, I'll never regret it. Let my enemy be exposed as wicked. 
Let my adversary be proven guilty. What hope do people without God have when life is cut short, when God puts an end to life? Do you think God will listen to their cry for help when disaster hits? What interest have they ever shown in the Almighty? Have they ever been known to pray before? I'll give you a clear account of God in action. Suppress nothing regarding God Almighty. The evidence is right before you. You can all see it for yourselves. So why do you keep talking nonsense? I'll quote your own words back to you. This is how God treats the wicked. This is what evil people can expect from God Almighty. Their children, all of them, will die violent deaths. They'll never have enough bread to put on the table. They'll be wiped out by the plague, and none of the widows will shed a tear when they're gone. Even if they make a lot of money and are resplendent to the latest fashions, it's the good who will end up wearing the clothes, and the decent who will divide up the money. They build elaborate houses that won't survive a single winter. They go to bed wealthy and wake up poor. Terror pours in on them like flash floods. A tornado snatches them away in the middle of the night. A cyclone sweeps them up, gone. Not a trace of them left, not even a footprint. Catastrophes relentlessly pursue them. They run this way and that, but there's no place to hide. Pummeled by weather, blown to smithereens by a storm. Chapter 27 is often referred to as the end of the cycles of debates between Job and his friends. Do we think that Job and his three friends came to any conclusions of truth? I'm finding it hard from my vantage point. Are you two friends? Oof. What we do see within chapter 27, though, is that Job's three friends were convinced that his sufferings were a result of some sin he must have committed. They were wrong. God was not punishing Job. Instead, God was displaying his glory to Satan and the entire world through Job's faith in the midst of such immense suffering. Verse 5, Suffering and Sovereignty Study, describes Job's statement in verse 5 when he says, I will never admit you're in the right till I die. I will not deny my integrity in this way. Trials and sufferings often shift our thinking and turn our hearts inward. This is where we meet Job today. After hours of speeches defending himself and wrestling with God, Job still struggled reconciling his circumstances with his faith. But there is one thing Job knew with certainty. His character was good and upright. Job would not bend or bow down to anyone regarding his integrity. Though his friends repeatedly subjected him to the common theology of the day, that God rewards those who do good and punishes those who do evil, Job never fell victim to it. Job's integrity served as a centerpiece of his opening words in Job chapter 27. Integrity refers to the soundness of a person's character. It entails the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. It's often described as the way you behave when no one is looking. Job knew who he was on the inside, and he lived that every day on the outside. Job clung to his claims of righteousness throughout all the lies his friends had spoken about him. He held fast to that which he knew was true. Integrity is the sum total of who we are. The responsibility for our integrity lies solely with us. It's a product of perseverance, faithfulness, and making right decisions over time. The author made it clear in Job chapter 1 that Job lived a life of integrity. God himself described Job as a man of integrity when he used words like blameless and upright. Job lived his life well. He honored God and his word. At the end of Job chapter 2, after losing everything, Job spoke these amazing words, Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Job uncompromisingly adhered to God's moral code of conduct, even when the culture and people around him screamed otherwise. Job's conscience was clear. 
Despite his friend's accusations, Job knew he lived a life of integrity and would not deny it, as he said in verse 6, I will maintain my innocence without wavering. My conscience is clear for as long as I live. Oh, that we could all walk in this confidence. Confidence in knowing that we have lived our lives well, not perfectly, not without sin, but with pure hearts that seek to please God in all we say and do. It's in that place of confidence where we can trust God with the hard places in life. We can bear up under persecution, temptation, and not allow Satan's lies to become our truth. We can hold on, stand firm, and turn to God, the only one who can truly rescue us. In chapter 28, we hear Job question where wisdom comes from. It reads, We all know how silver seems the rocks. We've all seen the stuff from which gold is refined. We're aware of how iron is dug out of the ground and copper is smelted from rock. Miners penetrate the earth's darkness, searching for the roots of the mountains of fur ore, digging away in the suffocating darkness. Far from civilization, far from the traffic, they cut a shaft and are lowered into it by ropes. Earth's surface is a field for grain, but its depths are a forge. Firing sapphires from stones and chiseling gold from rocks, vultures are blind to its riches, hawks never lay eyes on it. Wild animals are oblivious to it, lions don't know it's there. Miners hammer away at the rock, they uproot the mountains. They tunnel through the rock and find all kinds of beautiful gems. They discover the origins of rivers and bring earth's secrets to light. But where, oh where, will they find wisdom? Where does insight hide? Mortals don't have a clue, haven't the slightest idea where to look. Earth's depths say it's not here. Ocean's depths echo, never heard of it. It can't be bought with the finest gold. No amount of silver can get it. The famous Ophir gold can't buy it, not even diamonds and sapphires. Neither gold nor emeralds are comparable. Extravagant jewelry can't touch it. Pearl necklaces and ruby bracelets? Why bother? None of this is even a down payment on wisdom. Pile gold and African diamonds as high as you will. They can't hold a candle to wisdom. So where does wisdom come from? And where does insight live? It can't be found by looking. No matter how deep you dig, no matter how far and high you fly. If you search through the graveyard and question the dead, they'll say, we've only heard rumors of it. God alone knows the way to wisdom. He knows the exact place to find it. He knows where everything is on earth. He sees everything under heaven. After he commanded the winds to blow and measured out the waters, arranged for the rain, and set off explosions of thunder and lightning, he focused on wisdom, made sure it was all set and tested and ready. Then he addressed the human race. Here it is. Fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. And insight means shunning evil. First 5, Suffering and Sovereignty Study says in Job chapter 28, Job details mankind's skill and ability to mine and discover the secret treasures of the earth. In it, we find riches like gold, silver, copper, and ore, as well as jewels like sapphires and pearls. Mankind is masterful at mining and finding hidden treasure. Man's sheer determination and intelligence enables him to accomplish astonishing achievements and advancements in industry, science, and technology. But what about wisdom? Wisdom is the rarest of all treasures. Scripture tells us wisdom provides protection, deliverance, strength, and stability. It's better than might or muscle. Wisdom is more profitable to us than gold or silver, and wisdom is far more precious than jewels. Nothing compares to wisdom. Job is honestly and relentlessly searching for answers to the agonizing questions his suffering has stirred up. He is confident the wisdom of man cannot compare to the matchless value of God and his wisdom. Job is willing to persevere in his search for God alone and the wisdom only he can give. 
Spiritual wisdom isn't vague or abstract. It's real and relevant. It's practical and personal. It is God's wisdom that provides us with sanity in the chaos, clarity in our confusion, and helps us navigate our way when the world doesn't make sense. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? It's not found in the land of the living or the depths of the sea. It can't be bought or sold because it's matchless in value. In fact, it is so valuable it must be searched for, mined for, and found because it cannot be easily located on the surface. Like the ancient miners Job describes, we often work in vain, forgetting to ask the Lord to give us wisdom that is His and His alone. And like Job's companions, we are all too often try to lean on our own understanding rather than acknowledging God and asking for help. So often we only explore the world's wisdom that is easy to access and readily available to us. Our first response is to do a Google search or turn to YouTube when we are facing a challenging situation or dilemma. Why? Because it's right at our fingertips. It's quick and easy to find answers to any question or the solution to any problem on the internet. In our desire to find comfort as quickly as possible, we pick up the phone to call a friend before we consult God. We are prone to rely on the culture for answers, others who are smarter than us or a book addressing the topic. We even depend on ourselves for wisdom by taking a common-sense approach or trying to fix the problem without ever going to God. In all honesty, we want logical access and simple solutions to our challenges instead of letting faith do its work in us. We seek the quickest solution to our problems, and we hunt for wisdom on the surface where it is easily accessible. But all the wisdom in the world cannot compare to the wisdom God gives. God alone knows the way to wisdom, and He is the only true source of it. No matter our striving, unless we begin with the Lord, all our labor will be in vain. So what do we do when we ask God for wisdom? We start with prayer, humbly acknowledging our need for God's wisdom and asking Him to guide us and help us while trusting Him to generously provide all we need. Then we turn to the places where He tells us the treasure of His wisdom can be found, in Christ and His Word, in the community of mature believers and persistent prayer. While God tells us where to look, He may want us to get our hands dirty, toss away the fake treasure, and keep mining for what is precious and true. Job's search for God's wisdom in this difficult season of his life wasn't easy, and there are times when ours won't be either. But it all begins with a respectful and reverent attitude toward God because wisdom is found in Him. Then, as we continually turn from evil, diligently use and apply the wisdom God gives us, and keep seeking and trusting Him without compromise, we will discover more of God's wisdom along the way. Continuing on, The Jesus Bible has this to say about true wisdom, as discussed in verses 1-28. through The search for wisdom is like a search for a hidden treasure. Job 28, a poetic interlude in the book, compares the one who searches for wisdom to a miner searching for something valuable that is buried and hidden in the dark. People will take great risks, brave great depths and heights, and push beyond darkness in order to find treasure. The search for wisdom is no less strenuous. Simply put, wisdom is knowing and doing the will of God, which is hard to do in the midst of suffering. The book of Proverbs is all about wisdom, and it begins with a thesis statement of sorts about wisdom found in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. All people fit into one of two categories, those who pursue wisdom and those who despise wisdom. Jesus taught that true wisdom was to obey His words, as mentioned in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. 
Jesus also thanked his father for hiding spiritual truths from people who are wise in their own eyes, as we read in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. Wisdom is about seeing that this world does not get it right all the time. Sometimes bad things happen to people who do not deserve it. And sometimes the wicked thrive while the righteous struggle. Wisdom teaches that the way up to glory is to go low in humility. The way to save is one's life is to lose it following Jesus. Jesus came to turn the values of the world upside down through divine wisdom. The New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible says this about chapter 28, verse 28. The fear of the Lord is a key theme in the wisdom literature of the Bible. These books of wisdom literature include Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. The fear of the Lord means to have respect and reverence for God and to be in awe of His majesty and power. This is a starting point to finding real wisdom. This study note indicates reading Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 as a cross-reference here. In the NLT, this verse reads, Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Just for comparison's sake, the same verse in the message translation reads, Start with God. The first step in learning is bowing down to God. Only fools thumb their nose at such wisdom and learning. The study note in the NLT Life Application Bible says this about Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. In this age of information, knowledge is plentiful, but wisdom is scarce. Wisdom means far more than simply knowing a lot. It is a basic attitude that affects every aspect of life. This foundation of knowledge is to fear the Lord, to honor and respect God, to live in awe of His power, and to obey His word. Faith in God should be the controlling principle for your understanding of the world, your attitudes, and your actions. Trust in God. He will make you truly wise. As a little study tip to note here, have you noticed like I have that many of the cross-references from my NLT Life Application Study Bible include verses from Proverbs and Psalms for more insights to what Job is saying here in chapter 28, similar to what we just studied with Proverbs 1, verse 7. I love finding these threads tying the contents of the chapters and verses of the books of the Bible together, don't you? Also, I want to take a moment to remind us of this crucial truth from chapter 28 in which Job points to God as the source of all wisdom. The fact that we're fixing our eyes on Him, looking for Him, studying His Word, we're searching and even finding that wisdom of God on these pages, friends. So even as you may be realizing how little you know of God so far, it takes wisdom to even realize that. By putting our eyes on His Word, we're growing in wisdom. He is fulfilling His promise to us that those who seek Him with all their hearts will find Him. How amazing is that? So as we close, will you join me in doing something a little bit different during our prayer time today? As I was studying for this episode, I heard these applicable thoughts on the Passion Daily podcast one morning. As I read through this, could you take these thoughts and make them the prayer of your heart in times of confusion, heartache, and pain? The excerpt begins. The enemy might be telling you right now that this situation in your life is not going to work out. Maybe he's saying, don't get your hopes up because things are never going to change for you. But you must remember that when the devil speaks, he never leads us to the truth. Your struggle may be big, but it is not bigger than Jesus. Today, Jesus wants to break the power of the lie that says otherwise and tell you once again that he is bigger than whatever you are up against. The question today is, which voice will you choose to listen to, the liar or the one who speaks truth? You have the power, no matter how helpless or broken down you feel, to choose. You can fix your eyes on the heartache 
or you can lift your eyes higher to the God of heaven and earth. With our Almighty God in view, whatever is standing in your way would be resized by God's greatness. We forget about the powerful work of Jesus on the cross to destroy once and for all the power of hopelessness, sin, death, and the grave. We forget that God created the universe with just a word and sustains all things with His mighty power. We forget that He has promised to lead us through the valley and to fulfill His purpose for our life. So do whatever you must today to move Jesus into view, to remember His work on the cross, put Him in front of your heartache, confusion, anxiety, depression, panic, or worry. Let Him stand in front of them all, and when He is there, worship Him for who He is. Now let's take a minute to pray and ask God to remove any distractions from your life that are consistently shifting your eyes off Jesus, to remember that His mercies are new for you every morning so you can rest assured that He will respond to you with faithfulness and grace. He will never leave or forsake you. He never lets go. So encouraging, right, my friends? A solid understanding of these truths is the prayer of my heart for all of us. How about we just end as we end all of our times of prayer together? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, as in the last episode, can I just be brutally honest again for a moment? Friends, reviews matter. They absolutely do. They create interest and give credibility so new listeners don't have to take my word about how much I love hosting the Open Our Bibles Together podcast, but instead have other listeners that they already know, love, and trust vouching for the podcast. For this and about a million other reasons, I won't stop beating this drum from episode to episode because you taking five minutes to drop some stars and a quick review wherever you are listening today will make so much more impact than you may ever know. And for that, I thank you in advance, my friends. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends. <music>